0: If you could control things with your mind, what would you do? It's Pong, isn't it? You'd play a never-ending game of Pong with a monkey. Well lucky you because elon musk has got you sorted for that alarmingly specific scenario yes that is coming up this week on download this show plus ultra fast internet from space and why is the victorian government taxing electric vehicles more and half a billion linkedin account details leaked what happened and what can you do about it all of that and much more coming up this is your guide to the week in media technology and culture my name is mark Fennell. welcome to download this show Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And we are joined by Sarah Moran, founder and CEO at Girl Geek Academy. Welcome back.
1: Woohoo. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> That's
0: a big energy intro. I like it. And Canal <laughs> Cairo, the founder and CEO of Eugene. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, see, now you try to match the energy. I like it. <laughs> um, so much stuff has happened in the world of media, technology, and culture this week. I want to start with LinkedIn. Um, Sarah, there's been a, a LinkedIn security leak. What's happened?
1: So there has been a lot of LinkedIn information found on the dark web. Um, But what has happened is uh, LinkedIn profiles have been scraped and that information has been made available for sale. A sample has come out. So if people want to try before they buy, they can see (laughs) what, uh, you know, a snippet of what information is available um, and you can buy the rest, uh, which I am not endorsing in any way, shape or form.
0: No, despite the smile on your face, uh, 500 (laughs) million scraped profiles. uh, There's a sample of 2 million profiles. What exactly is the information canal? Because it feels like if it's like 500 million accounts where you know someone's been endorsed for like ability to speak on radio or whatever random skill you've been endorsed with on LinkedIn, is is it that bad or is it more than that?
2: Uh, it's a little bit more than that, but it's also not the worst, which I never really want to say about a data dump, to be honest. So there's 500 million uh, accounts that have been uh, that have been dumped, but what's useful to know is that there's only 700 million users, or well, I do not call it only, but 700 million <laughs> users on LinkedIn.
0: When you get 700 million users <laughs> at Eugene, I doubt you'll be like, well, it's just 700
2: million. But sorry, carry on. Uh, yeah, so it, if you're on LinkedIn, you, you're you probably affected just based on statistics. Uh, what they don't know is if this is an aggregate of previous dumps or if it's a fresh dump and if the information's up to date. But what's on there is personal information, so first name, last name, email address, Gender professional experience, or anything that was on your public LinkedIn profile that has been leaked or dumped. Let's agree together,
0: as a as a download this show family, to never use the phrase "fresh dumps" again. <laughs>
2: I just feel like that's yeah, something we should all agree that we're never going to do. I think I'm on board that actually. Yeah. <laughs> I know I said it, but <laughs> I'm on board.
0: So, is there anything you can do, Sarah? If I mean, statistically speaking, there's a high chance if you have a LinkedIn account that you your at least some of your data will have been taken in some way shape or form. Is there anything you can do about it?
1: Don't be a statistic. Um so basically, <laughs> uh, well what I did, my first reaction was to go to that amazing Australian website have I been pwned, 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 dot com um created by Troy Hunt. What a led um, which basically shows you um, if your, you know, if any of your accounts have ever been breached. I personally have had um, <clears throat> 14 on my personal account and six on my work account um, across different data breaches over the years. Um, And then as advertised on that very website, please, please, please get a password manager. Um, We should all be regularly updating our passwords, but having a password manager really, really helps you stay ahead of the nasty, nasty, fresh um, (laughs) dump-seeking people on the internet.
0: Is there a sense of what can be done, Canal, with this information? Like, I I think when we talk about security leaks, it's very easy to kind of talk about it as like a sort of a disaggregated collection of bits, right? I I think it's helpful to understand that this information, people can do stuff with it, right?
2: Yeah. So, with this particular leak, because it's just pretty high level information, they can do much with it just alone, but really motivated attackers could put this together with other information that has been breached through uh i guess you know the years and put together a much more sophisticated phishing or social engineering attack uh, against people Mm. and i think that's the real risk uh, which is why it's really important for all your passwords to be managed well and if you've got the same password that you've used in multiple accounts that's something that's really important as well because if Uh, if the attackers have your password for LinkedIn, but it's the same password you've used for everything else, then almost everything else is at risk because you're using the same email address as well. so it's really thinking about things more holistically. So when
0: we talk about a password manager, for people that have never heard of the concept mm. before or never actually bothered to set one up, Sarah, what what does it actually do and, and how do they work?
1: You can download them as an app or you can use them in your browser or hopefully both. Um, and what it does is it's one place where you log in and save all of your passwords. Um, and what is useful about that is... Well, well, what tends to happen when you're creating a password is you're like, what is something I'm going to remember? And if you can remember it, it's probably quite um, easy to break into because your human brain um, doesn't quite have as much power as all of the uh, power of the internet. So uh, a password manager, yeah, you usually get an app and a browser and you log in. It's often a paid service um, and you're paying for that security and that peace of mind. There's a a
0: thing you can do that a lot of the the major browsers, so your Safaris and your Google mm. Chrome's, they'll actually suggest a a super strong, password. Is that enough? I mean, because that would be saved within that that service. Is, is that enough, or do you need a third party?
2: You you don't necessarily need a third party. It just um, I guess what's relevant is if you have multiple devices and you're going to plan on log logging into that service from different places, that. Uh, you want to use the same. So if you're using Chrome, you want to use Chrome on your phone, you want to use Chrome on your computer, so that it's all kind of synced up. Because uh, otherwise, you'll know the password in one device, and then you're always going to be confused about how to log into th- any of the other devices. So you can use your browser ones. They're pretty functional. Uh,
1: or if you're like me, so I log into my browser with my email password. And yeah. so if that is not complex enough, then what is the point of having all the rest? Because you can just find it in my browser. You can find all of my passwords. So for me, Password manager, um, I'm going to go home and update it when I get home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would almost go one step further. And I think if you can turn on a two-factor authentication on all of your services, that's, that's just way better.
0: So that's the thing where it has an email login and it has a mobile phone login. And it sort of sends you a text message to your phone if, uh, if, if somebody untoward or non-you, yep. non-you, there you go, that's a word, uh, <laughs> yeah. tries to log in.
2: Yep, Absolutely. And I think that's quite meaningful in terms of protecting, your, uh, uh, protecting the risk because even if they have your password, they can't log in because they would also have to have your phone to be able to get that text message. Just coming back to the, the LinkedIn
0: security scare here, Sarah, is there any sense of who's actually behind it?
1: Oh, I, I don't personally know and it wasn't <laughs> me.
0: Um. I mean, I'm not asking you if you're
2: like oh, your friends with them.
1: Yeah. You,
2: you <laughs> seem like, really Where were you on the night you. of the fear? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, I don't have that information right, to That's hand.
2: Canal, do
0: you personally know the person that has 500 million LinkedIn accounts?
2: <laughs> uh, no, no. I unfortunately <laughs> am not across it. Sounds like an alibi. If ever I heard one, <laughs> download
0: the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Canal Calro, the founder and CEO at Eugene, and Sarah Moran, the founder and CEO at Girl Geek Academy. Mark Fennell is my name. And Elon Musk's Neuralink has popped back into the news again this week. This time, uh, the chip that you plant in your brain, well, the brain of the monkey in this case, has helped it play Pong. Why is this important, Kana? And indeed, is it at all important?
2: Okay, so I feel <laughs> like I was here the last time we talked <laughs> about know. this. You're and... my go-to for like, brain <laughs> <Yeah>. implants. You're <laughs> brain implant guy. I like it, I like yeah. it. I'm, I'm on board. Uh, so, okay, you know what? This time, actually, it's a little bit cool. <laughs> so... Uh, they 've installed a uh, they 've installed a chip in uh, pager the monkey 's brain, and this chip has about two thousand electrodes that are all injected into the motor cortex of pager and it 's recording all the neural activity that uh, that 's happening in in that particular region so that in itself incredibly cool just to think about how you might perform brain surgery to the point of installing two thousand electrodes in someone 's brain without well killing them <laughs> so yes not killing them is a good goal yeah really really interesting uh, to even find success in installing a 2000 electrode chip in to an animal's brain and be able to successfully record the uh, the neural activity that's happening in that region and they literally paired it with an iPhone, which I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> uh, so they've paired it with an iPhone, and now they're teaching Pong how to play uh, the video game with a joystick while recording the activity in the motor car- mo- in the motor cortex, so they can kind of link up the regions that are becoming more active when, the, when Pager's moving the joystick in particular directions. And so once they can kind of sync that, they can start to predict what Pager is going to do with just understanding what regions are being activated uh, in Pager's brain. So at some point they just remove the joystick, and now Pager is essentially Yoda. So <laughs> I like that's a technical term. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, this is a like just on the points because understanding the interface is is really. Crucial here a couple of years ago, I, I did a thing where I wore one of those brain scanny helmet things, and using that I tried to fly a drone and spoiler alert, I flew that drone into so many walls and I think <laughs> one of the things that there i that, like th- this technology of like reading your brain activity and trying to translate it into an action is actually really complex, isn't it, it is. Sarah
1: it is such a complex thing and to reduce it to a three minute video, I think is also very talented <laughs> um, but you know the the idea that we are now at a place where without a joystick, you can play Pong, um, if you are a monkey, is next level. It is absolutely the stuff of science fiction and it freaks the bejesus out of me, to be completely frank. Canal, what's
0: involved in, in, in understanding how to read the, the electrical signatures in different regions of the brain and trying to translate that into an instruction to a piece of software? Like what's actually involved in that process that you're aware of?
2: Well, so it's really unique to the individual or animal in this case. And so it's not just something that, uh, you know, if we just like put a little helmet on you and we're recording your brain activity, it's not like we'll be able to predict exactly what you're doing just from the start. You almost have to link that to an action that's happening in real life. So maybe you're seeing a photo of your family member or something and you can see which regions are being activated. And so it because it's so unique, it's it's almost like, it's all. I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of like gene sequencing. To be able to understand, uh, to be able to sequence the genome is one thing, but to be able to understand how that plays out uniquely for each individual person is quite another. And so it's a really complex science. We're barely scratching the surface. Uh, all they were able to do really over here, well, I mean, it's actually really impressive, so I don't want to say all they were able to do. What they were able to do over here was able uh, was to understand what movements uh, Pager is going to make without Pager having to make those movements anymore. But that requires the unique connection of understanding how Pager's brain works and mapping that to a physical activity that's happening outside.
0: So what I'm hearing is, it wasn't my fault that I flew the drone into many, many walls.
1: Is <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> mapping. Uh, Always the mapping.
2: <laughs> it's correct. Yes, that is correct. It's the mapping. Uh, and also then the follow-on in terms of uh, remapping that onto actual activity, right? Because it's about understanding what you're doing, what's happening in your brain, but then also then remapping that to uh, make sure that what's happening in the real world now is actually the same thing that you want in your brain.
0: I feel like me not being at fault is the perfect chance for me to pivot into something Else, <laughs> there should be no more discussion after I have completed flying the drone into the wall. <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to, and staying on Elon Musk news. Uh, Elon Musk's Starlink satellite internet uh, is now available in parts of Australia. What is Starlink satellite internet is probably the more pertinent question there, Sarah. It's it's quite controversial among some people, but let's just start off with exactly what it is and what it was designed to do.
1: Yeah, so Starlink, uh, if you have never heard of it, will essentially be um, high-speed internet that will be available over satellite. And so Elon Musk and his team are launching satellites over different parts of the world um, linked together to be able to provide ubiquitous uh, internet coverage. I personally have signed up for our Girl Geek Academy Samoa team, so I'm waiting for it to launch there. Um, And if you're in Victoria or certain parts of southern New South Wales, if you look up at the stars at night, you may see Starlink.
0: Yes. And that actually is one of the things I want to talk about because Starlink seriously pisses off astronomers because it's actually cluttering the sky canal.
2: Yep, it is. And fair enough uh, to be honest uh, so it's really interesting uh, there's a few types of astronomers that are particularly ticked off uh, one of them involves a doomsday scenario so i know you'll love that i do and, I uh, <laughs> a give me uh, f-
0: give me an apocalypse please <laughs> uh,
2: so so there's the astronomers who are usually watching out for any asteroids that are heading towards earth so uh, because the night sky is cluttered with Starlink's very, very bright satellites, what happens is that it ruins the imaging that they receive and they're not able to necessarily always predict if there are asteroids heading towards Earth, especially at an early enough point where it might be relevant for uh, and we might be able to act appropriately. So that's a thing that people do. Uh, and I think we've all seen Armageddon from the 90s, right? Like, yeah. was there a deep impact? Uh, I there, think was there was it, both, too. and Armageddon
0: is the better movie. Uh, this uh, is the hill I will die on. Literally, because the <laughs> asteroid will hit me because I'm
2: higher. I don't
0: think that's how science works, but let's commit to it
2: anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Uh, in essence it's it's making their lives harder because they're not necessarily able to see the images in clearer fashion and starlink is aware and they are trying to do stuff about it. They're trying to coat the satellites to make it less reflect, uh, reflective, yeah. and they're also trying some sort of umbrella situation, sunshade visor thing. I'm not sure how that's going to go. But <laughs> yeah. all right,
0: so let's let's just move the like the doomsday scenario just as off to a side for a second. Let's just talk about it itself. Sarah, you said you signed up for your samoa team. What is it that your What is it that it has that compares to the the normal kind of internet that you could get uh, currently in Australia at the moment?
1: Well, I mean, in Samoa where you can't, so that's why I signed up. Um, yep. basically, the internet there is not so great. So as soon as better internet is available, I'm I'm ready for it. And it's a similar situation in Australia, to be honest. Um, I come from a rural and regional area originally, where we have never had good internet. Um, and it's still the case where we're currently getting the MBN that is quite patchy. Um and it is over different types of um, providers. So uh, a lot of people are signing up in order to be able to get higher speeds, more data. It is probably at a slightly higher cost, but the fact that it is reliable and available um, makes it a really, really appealing option for people who are currently dissatisfied with the MBN. Is it more reliable? Like, do we know that? Well, I'm just putting my faith behind (laughs) the future potential availability. I mean, it sells itself on being not necessarily more reliable, but faster and yep. you know, um and, and to me that that's what a lot of people are looking for. One of the big yep. debates around MBN is the caps on speeds. And um I, I think even just the approach that Starlink has taken in terms of a customer-led approach, you know, I had to put my money down and I'm very keen to sign up. It allows them to be able to research what is it people actually want and how do you leapfrog ahead to that next um, level of providing internet service in Australia?
2: Well, I think the actual service and when it's when it's live, we'll see how functional it is. They're claiming 50 to 150 downloads, uh, ups and downs, so 50 to 150 uh, megabits per second. That's, excellent. that's a good quote, right? Like that's high-speed internet. That's what you want it's uh, theoretically should be better than some of the other satellite internet as well just because it's in lower orbit so it's a bit closer so less affected by some of the other considerations so all of those things p- Are pointing to a good sign. But here's where it comes down to. I think that internet is a basic human right at this stage, right? It opens up opportunities for employment. It opens up opportunities for education, healthcare, organization. So all of this stuff is so important that it's absolutely insane to be living in a developed world country where we don't have equitable access to internet. And if this can take us to that level, especially because building infrastructure for 4G or cable internet in rural areas is really expensive and impractical, this could be quite a meaningful thing for Australia, but also so many other parts of the world where we where everyone's just sort of leapfrogging that cable internet era, went straight to 4G, and now this could be that next level up. So e-
1: equitable is an interesting word because I don't think it will be cheap. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that that is something that Fair really enough. concerns me. Yeah. Um I I invest in technology over a lot of other things and I'm sponsoring the Samoan team to be able to get that internet. Um but, you know, why haven't our own government provided us with internet that's satisfactory? Um, look, that New Zealand bubble, that trans-Tasman <laughs> bubble, I think about how good my internet would be when I'm on holidays.
0: Question. If you're in a part of regional Australia that has spotty internet, are you better off trying to get an NBN connection or are you better off with something like Starlink, at least as it's being currently advertised, the reality of which we'll see in time? But but if you were faced with having to to choose right now what would you choose?
1: Um, So I have family who all live in regional areas. Um, We've, you know, looking at connecting a house in Yamba. And the issue that we're facing, I mean, my parents have the NBN pole in their front yard and their connection is terrible. But for them it's enough, right? Like they, when it's just the two of my parents, empty nesters, um, you know, they, they just need... To be connected, they're happy to wait. <laughs> they're not necessarily fussed about speeds. But when we're looking at, um, you know, all of us moving to remote, uh, remote working and being able to work from home, I'd love to be able to see my parents more. Mm. But if I can't connect to the internet. I ain't going, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's always a big fight when we go home at Christmas <laughs> and you just can't, not everyone can be on three devices at once, did you know?
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, like when we say it's enough, like, w- enough for them to smash out a season of Vera or an iView, like, what, like, what, what is enough to them?
1: <laughs> and it is, you know, it is that. They, um, I mean, they're massive TV heads like me. So it is about um, being able to stream and that is enough. The connection, I think they get 25 megabits per second. Mm. Um, the, and, it, you know, it's more than it ever was when I was growing up. But it is. You know, I look at my my um, partner's parents in New Zealand who just automatically get connected to hundred gigabyte, uh, sorry, hundred megabits per second internet by default. They're in their eighties, like, but that's what they get. And I, I think, um, stealing the very...
0: Wi-Fi when I'm over there. Just so you know, just let your par- let let your partner <laughs> know this is happening, okay. <laughs> Download the show. is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Mark Fennelli is my name. Our guest this week, Kunal Calro, founder and CEO at Eugene, and Sarah Moran, the founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. And as of July 1st, there is a new tax that will be imposed in the state of Victoria on electric vehicles. It's hugely controversial. The question is, why does the tax exist in the first place? And is it the right way of managing the launch of electric vehicles around the country. Canal, just, just tell me back to the beginning. What's the origin of the tax? What's it designed to do?
2: (sighs) Oh, that (laughs) exhale. (laughs) That like very, like pained (laughs) exhale. Uh, yeah, so the idea behind the tax is that even though uh, zero emission vehicles or hybrid vehicles, there aren't that many on the road, I think the percentage is incredibly low. The idea was that they want to introduce this tax ahead of time so that as uptake increases, uh, people with zero emission vehicles are paying their quote unquote fair share of managing the road infrastructure. Right, which is currently, how, how is that funded, Sarah? It's through fuel excise, right?
1: It is, and it is through the federal government, uh, usually. So um, this baffled me. I I came out swinging when this was announced. Um, You can see a very grumpy photo of me in the age (laughs) with my girl gang around (laughs) our Nissan Leaf. Um, I was pissed, to be quite frank. Um, So the idea is that... Uh, EV users pay their fair share of road tax. The issue is there's hardly any of us. Like mm-hmm. there is not enough that we're. it's a drop in the ocean what impact this tax will have. But you know what impact it does have is it turns people off. Um, I So as I said, Golgi Academy, we have a, a leaf and I also personally ha- am subscribed month to month to a Tesla um, because I am here to role model the transition. And I was very annoyed that the Victorian government in particular who hangs their hat on being progressive has decided to turn their back on the transition in this respect.
2: It's terrible especially because transport uh, so transport pollution, pollution caused by transport is one of the fastest growing p- polluters in Victoria. So the one thing we need to be doing is incentivizing more people to be buying EVs and not gas guzzlers. So this goes completely against that and why? It's like we're so uh, so caring so caring about our roads. What about our air?
0: Okay, so furious agreement that the the you don't like the the new sort of structure of the legislation. My question then becomes, Sarah, there is a certain amount of uh, revenue that's required to maintain roads and whatnot. What would be the better mechanism to collect that income? Do you think that that wouldn't be this? Then it wouldn't in effect, uh, disincentivize people from buying electric vehicles? Is there a, a preferred structure?
1: I mean, look, we all use... So for those of you who don't have an electric vehicle... Um, you, assume that's all of us. Yes, right? I'm just going to assume don't. it's everybody. You, I mean, if you don't have a charger at home, you literally go to a charging station and you fill it up, just like you would fill up your petrol, um, you fill up your battery. And all of that is monitored. Like, all of the... You know, even if it's at home, it's metered by how much I'm using as to how much I'm driving. The issue with this tax um, is that people, certain EV drivers, end up paying more than what petrol uh, drivers do with the excise. And I, look, I'm just so angry um, that it's actually quite hard to come up with solutions. I just think this isn't it. At this point, I think we should be still be subsidising EVs to get on the road in the first place um, and then look at what what the impact is long-term in a different way.
0: Okay, so I'll, I'll sling the same question to you, Canal. We've got this situation mm. where... At some point, you do need to pay for maintenance of of roads. Now, the question of whether that happens at a state or federal level is a complicated one. I'm going to shift that to the side for the second here. You do need some mechanism to collect revenue to support the infrastructure on which all cars drive, right? So what would be the preferred way for you for that to work if if not doing this?
2: Uh, So two things. One is about timing. So now is not the time where we need to scale uh, the... Our fleet, the Australian fleet, that needs to be way more EVs before this becomes the practical decision to make. Uh, I think so that's like number one. If this happened a lot later, I don't think I would have had as much of an issue with it. The other thing is about managing all of the externalities. So this is about managing the externality around roads. And fair enough, they do need to get paid for. We do need to maintain them. I understand that. And it could be done in different ways. Uh, you know, based on uh, location, congestion, all of this. There's lots of other ways to focus on what roads need maintenance. Who's driving them? Are they driving alongside public transport or are they not? There's just there's a lot more complex things that can be considered uh, as a as a ho- from a holistic perspective. So that's that's like number two. And then the third thing is to disincentivize. People who are buying gas-guzzling cars, and I say that because there are external externalities that no one's paying for right now. What about the public health of having unclean air? What about the fact that we will end up with an environment that none of us can live in? So, who's paying for those externalities? No one. So. In essence, if we're going to talk about being fair, then we should talk about being fair across the board and not just on this one thing. And if we're not talking about being fair and we want to just like fix a small scale problem, then the timing of this is just like inappropriate. It should have happened just maybe a decade later. So here's a question. Um, They're expecting that uh, electric vehicles will sort
0: of reach parity with existing cars in a few years' time. This legislation gets put in place in Victoria now, in a few years' time when the cars cost roughly the same as what uh, petrol cars cost. Do you think people will notice, Sarah. The outrage will happen now, but then it'll become part of the standard way of operating. By the time the majority of the population can afford to own an electric vehicle, do you think it's taking the heat out of it by doing it now so that when the, the cars become affordable for the majority of Australians, they won't even notice? Is that, is, do you think that's the logic of it, Sarah?
1: If that is the logic, are they trying to slow the transition down You know what I mean? Like, it's okay. I know that a lot of car producers have come out and said, by 2025, by 2030, we will stop producing these cars. But the transition still has to happen. And so um, I guess people already see EVs as expensive, but when you break it down, when you break down the fact you're not paying for petrol and you're not paying for a lot of other things, plus it is super cool technology, um, particularly my car, I love it. But um, I I think that it is just so misplaced um, to put your energy into this tax instead of accelerating that transition as quickly as we can while the earth is burning.
0: I guess we'll see how it plays out. Uh, That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Thank you both so much for talking to me. Canel Calro, founder and CEO of Eugene, thanks for being back on the show. Absolutely. It's so good to be here and Sarah Moran, the founder and CEO of Girl Geek Academy. Thank you so much for being back on the show.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: That is it for the program. Uh, If you enjoyed this, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you choose to peruse. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.